pastor was going through Hebrews, and, and after about the seventh chapter, he told his pastor, look, we get it. Uh, Jesus is the great high priest, and his salvation is, is greater than, than all other, and, and, uh, and that is the theme that just keeps getting developed over and over again, as his uh, pastor told him, uh, there's a reason the writer of Hebrews uh, keeps coming back to that same idea. So and many times when we end in these first few chapters, it's almost as though it's where we ended the last time, uh, the last chapter, uh, but there is a reason why he's developing things as he does. And we'll see that as we go along. I just uh, want to recap uh, Hebrews chapter 1 before we get to chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews leave, or left us no doubt that Jesus is God incarnate. And that word incarnate, that just means uh, in the flesh, made flesh. He's, he, he is God. Uh, one quote that I used last week, and I want to use it as somewhat of a summary heading into this week, is uh, this. One theologian wrote, the Son of God, in his divine nature, is everything that the Father, the great King of creation, is in his divine nature. The deity of the Son is nothing more or less than that of his Father, and he possesses the same inherent authority over all. Chapter 1, really wanted us to see. Jesus is God, fully God. Now, we spent some time in verse 3 of chapter 1. We see it in verse 8 where he's called God. In verse 10, he's called Lord. He talked about the superiority over the angels, which to the Jewish audience to which he is writing uh, would have been a big thing. And he will carry that idea of his superiority uh, to the angels in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. And you'll notice, as we get to chapter 2, it starts with the word, therefore. Well, what's the therefore that we have to bring in? And if you look back at chapter 1, uh, verse 14, it's talking about uh, the, the angels as ministering spirits uh, sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. He's going to pick up on this idea of this salvation that our great God has brought us. So... Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him? For the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing of 
outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for he, or for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The holy and inerrant word of God. I remember uh, when our daughters were younger, uh, Eric and I would take them uh, to a beach, and this beach was on the St. Croix River, and you're probably not familiar with the St. Croix River, but uh, in the area where we went, it separated Wisconsin and Minnesota, and it's, it's a big river, very large, and, and a very strong current, and it's deep, and, and it's one of those rivers that uh, even a very good swimmer swim from one shore to the other. It would take uh, an exceptional swimmer uh, to be able to do that. A very powerful river and very big and it had a beach area and we would play on this beach area and as we were playing around we would eventually, as you always do when you swim, get hungry. And we'd go, let's go to the cooler and get something to eat and we'd look up on the beach and wonder where our cooler had gone and then look and realize oh, it's way up
chapter 33, as this is near the end of Moses' life, and he's, he's giving blessings uh, to the people. And he mentions uh, the tens of thousands of holy ones, and he's, it's angels he's referring to, at Mount Sinai, when he received the, the Ten Commandments, when he received the law from God, he mentions that uh, these angels were there uh, delivering it. Paul picks up on that in Galatians chapter 3. I quoted it last week about the law put in place through angels. And here's what happened. Israel learned that when they neglected the law, there were some pretty dire consequences. And all the Jewish people knew that. They said, yeah, they, they had neglected the law, and if that was reliable, how much more now? salvation through him. He told his apostles many times and in many different places uh, that the only way to the Father was through Christ, that he would have to die for their sins. And, and he, would, he would say it over and over again. And then uh, that early church in the book of Acts, we see that, that those apostles and the early uh, disciples, they had what's called uh, the relevatory gifts. They, they were healing miracles, and they were speaking in different languages so that other people could understand them and show the power of this message that, that they had, that God was, was truly in the, what they were saying, and, and that's what the writer is mentioning in verse 4 when he talks about how the Holy Spirit was, was showing uh, what they were saying to be true. And, and the writer here says, that's not great salvation. God himself spoke to us. The Holy Spirit showed his power having this word delivered. And he wants us to keep our focus on uh, the founder of our salvation. You see that in verse 10, the, the founder of our salvation. I think the NIV uses uh, author of our salvation. I love the King James I, I believe that translation is pioneer of our salvation and, and he wants to keep us focused on Jesus and bring in uh, or highlight uh, a new elements if you will. As I mentioned in chapter 1 he was uh, very clearly telling us that Jesus is God. Now he will transition and tell us very clearly that Jesus is man. Fully God. He starts again with Jesus as the King. Verses 5 through 8, uh, when he quotes uh, Psalms. And I love how he starts with it. He said, It is uh, testified somewhere. He's not really concerned with the human author, and you'll probably pick up on that as we go through Hebrews. He's not really concerned who the human was that wrote uh, whatever was being said. Notice the Hebrews doesn't put his own name here. He's concerned about the Word of God. It's the Word of God, that's all I really care about. So it's testified somewhere, you'll see it in the Word of God. And then he quotes Psalm chapter 8. Now, Psalm chapter 8 is uh, an ode to the majesty of God. I put it that way. Uh, it talks of the majesty of God and the insignificance of man in comparison to God, but yet of uh, the dignity of man. So the 
insignificance yet dignity of man. And here's the thing with Psalm chapter 8. It wasn't regarded by the Jews as a messianic psalm. In other words, it wasn't necessarily pointing them to the Messiah, to Christ. Yet the New Testament will make that connection. In fact, Christ himself makes the connection between Psalm 8 um, and, and he does so in, in Matthew chapter 21. He'll identify himself with Psalm chapter 8. But in the Old Testament times, and even the first part of the New Testament, many of the Jews, they, they would not have seen uh, that this is a psalm talking about the Messiah. They thought it was part of the uh, creation mandate.
life and, and a great sense of history. And, and yet at the end of the day, it made sense of what he was saying, even though he would speak in, in ways it come from. Um, and I think we have to assume that posture sometimes uh, when we read the writer of Hebrews. This guy is absolutely brilliant. And he's got a great, deep understanding of the and sometimes when he says things, we have to really think about it because we don't have quite the depth of the Old Testament that he does. And many of his readers apparently have this great depth of the Old Testament as well. And, and so we'll go through some of these verses that he uses here. There's many directions we can go, but as I said, I'm going to try to stay focused on this one thing, but, but we do kind of have to work through a few of his high, lofty ideas uh, to get where we are going here. But you'll notice uh, in verses uh, 12 and then 13 that he uses three Old Testament quotes. Um, and these three may seem a little strange to us, especially if you just read them without thinking about them. Why would you use that quote? Well, uh, there, there's a reason. And so let's go through them. The first of them in verse 12, I will tell of your name uh, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This comes from Psalm chapter 22. And Psalm chapter 22 is actually a very, very famous psalm. It starts with this in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's many other very famous lines that Verse 18, for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Said by Jesus when he was dying on the cross. The, the guards uh, had taken on Jesus' clothing and, and were casting lots for some of them as Jesus was dying on the cross. It's a very uh, famous psalm that talks about the Messiah. And, and this quote that he uses here, I will tell of your name to my brothers, is actually towards the, the last part of the psalm. It's from Psalm 22, verse 22, and it begins the final section, and, and it's marked by a spirit of joy and victory, and it's, it's relating, uh, related to the rejoicing of the exalted Redeemer as he passes through suffering into glory, and, and the idea being, if I can just cut to the chase here, the idea being that, that he is the founder of this salvation for, for his brothers, for his fellow man, and, and, and that he's, he brings them into glory with him. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's bringing them into glory through his suffering. He too uh, will, will bring her in. He will bring us as well uh, in, into glory. And so that's the idea that he's getting at there. The next two Old Testament quotes he uses then, and these are from, they're both from Isaiah chapter 8. 
give uh, children, that is children of God, or if you want to put it this way, the elect. It's uh, people who, who, because of what they've done, deserve judgment, and that's coming, but that God has chosen some from that and given them a redeemer that, that they would become children of God. So that, that's the context of Isaiah chapter 8. And then he pulls this line out from that chapter. I will put my trust in him. And we have to look at this now in a Christian context. He's speaking. Uh, this is what Christ uh, would say, basically. I will put my trust in him. It's this attitude of confidence that Jesus has put in the Father. It, it emphasizes his humanity. The humanity assumed by God the Son, by Jesus, and it makes him truly one with us in weakness and temptation. I refer back to verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And he's speaking here of when Jesus came and, and, and as a man, he had to put his entire trust in God just one theologian put, uh, puts it, uh, it shows his genuineness of brotherhood to us. He's there. And then he pulls out this second quote from Isaiah chapter 8. The whole I and the children God has given to me, and then this is the redemption side. And kind of going off of what he had said earlier. And what Jesus uh, himself said in John chapter 6, he said, all that God gives to me will come to me, and I will not lose any of them. It's the, the Son of God with salvation for the, for the children of God, and he gets at this and really strongly in verse 14, and, and he almost overstates it and purposefully overstates it, because then he mentions, all right, the children, they share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise are talking the same things. You notice how he just keeps getting flesh and blood, likewise, same things, overstating this. He wants us to understand that Jesus, who is God, really became a human being. He's really a man. And why, why is this important? 
concerning death. We see that in the book of Job. We see that in many places in Scripture. What death is, is the sentence God pronounced against man's sin. That's what he told Adam at the very beginning. Death is the reality of divine judgments. And the spectacle of the cross, if I can quote uh, Philip Hughes here, the spectacle of the cross is not that of any man enduring the pains of death, but of the incarnate Son of God in his pure innocence, suffering a death not his doom. That death was final. And that death was final. You have to say, Christ was pure innocence. Did not deserve any kind of death. You see the necessity of his death on the cross because of salvation. 